Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Good morning. One and all, welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. Thanks for joining me, guys. Today we're going to finish up Sir Humphrey Davies' Last Days of a Philosopher. So this is part three. We're going to finally wrap it up. A little bit shorter this time, I think. Um, but it was definitely an interesting read. I mean, that that first chapter of The Vision really blew me away. We talked about that <clears throat> a couple episodes ago. Um, just to refresh your memory, I mean, from parts one and two, we... We emphasize that Humphrey Davy, the great scientist, the great chemist, um, he was dying when he wrote the book, and he wrote all kinds of, um, you know, published all kinds of science in his life, but waited till his dying days to publish this. And there's no surprise why he waited. When you compare the crazy vision of the last days of a philosopher to anything, any sober scientific tome, you can see. That couldn't be more different. And I think Davy was afraid of his reputation being tarnished by it, but at the same time, he thought that the revelation was so significant that he couldn't die and let it go unsaid. He had to share it with with the world. Um, so that's what he did. You know, he he has this book published after he's dead. He doesn't have to face the um, backlash or uh, the response of anybody. He just. He just put it out there into the ether, and the vision that we talked about in the first episode was absolutely crazy, you know, psychedelic trip crazy, you know, crazy dream crazy, that kind of crazy. <clears throat> Another interesting thing that Davy does <clears throat> is he tells the story in a in a dialogue form like Plato's dialogues, so it, it has the same structure of a platonic dialogue. Um, a bunch of people having a conversation. There's usually a scene, uh, almost like a play that's been set up to have this this conversation play out. Everybody in the dialogue, all the characters, they seem to represent different attitudes, different personalities, different persuasions, different ways in which human beings might um, react or respond to the topics that they're talking about. So everybody represents a different angle. And so they have this argument and it's like the argument itself between these human beings is playing out the arguments that each person represents against one another. So what what you're seeing is what arguments prevail over the others, all of which seem pretty rational and reasonable on the surface. And when they start digging into it, the story allows you to see which arguments are most powerful 
so you kind of make up your own mind. And I think that's the beauty of a dialogue, is that the reader makes up their own mind about it. Not like any other work of philosophy you've ever read, which tells you what the truth is. A platonic dialogue lets you figure it out for yourself, which I think is super important. And that's exactly what Davy did. He used the same strategy as Plato. And then, he again, he tells us about, about his vision. And, you know, to refresh your memory, this is basically his trip, his guided trip to heaven, which is a mythological motif that you see all kinds of places. We talked about it. Uh, we talked about it from the Christian tradition. Um, you know, uh, Enoch goes up, to, goes up to heaven and, and uh, communes with the angels. Um, the, um, uh, the story about Muhammad uh, going up to, um, to heaven and, and uh, touring it and meeting all the, all the patriarchs there. Um, the, sto- the story of um, Dante, um, you know, uh, going down into hell and going to heaven. Uh, you guys remember the Divine Comedy? And it just goes on and on. There's all sorts of references to that sort of thing. <clears throat> and so, so Davy goes to outer space, and that's kind of the unique part about his vision. <clears throat> He's seeing all the things prophets see in those visions. He's seeing supernatural creatures. He's seeing creatures higher than human beings, creatures closer to God, creatures that you might call angels or spirits or whatever. But they aren't really. They're existing flesh and blood creatures on other planets in our own solar system. And that's the vision that Davy brings. But it's but it's deeper than that because he brings in dreams to the picture. And that's what we saw in the second episode relating kind of the revelatory nature of that vision he had to dreams and some supernatural kind of unexplainable things that come from his dreams that he points to. And what he seems to be saying is that there's mystery and magic in the physical material world that we ignore. And there's a whole bunch of talk about reincarnation, basically, about progress of human, and I I don't know if you would even use the word human, but the progress of consciousness as it moves from one representation to another. So it's definitely positioned like reincarnation, like you die and maybe you get reborn as a higher being on Jupiter. Maybe you get reborn as a higher being in the sun, you know, something like that. It's really strange and unique, actually, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but the idea of progress is there. Like there's this like this climax that's pending out in the distance somewhere and the development of, of matter and the development of mind are all moving towards this goal, something that you might call God. Maybe, maybe some fuller level of consciousness. And that's kind of what Davy, what Davy talks about with these creatures that live on these other planets is that they're more fully conscious than human beings. And that, that's what makes them greater than human beings, you know, uh, that their achievements, um, was, it's marked, they're marked by knowledge, achievement, and moral development, really. So the higher creatures are those that know more, understand more, can do more. You know, they have the ability to mold themselves and the world around them more than we do. And they do that all with a higher, more developed moral sensibility. And those are the things that Davy says happens as consciousness improves, as it develops, as it evolves. Um, it gets it, it, 
it gets more fully conscious, more able to know, better able to know. It's able, better able to do, and it does it all with this kind of be- higher moral umbrella. But the strangeness of the here and nowness of the spiritual place, the place where these higher beings exist, it's not a spiritual place. You know, it's not a place distant from us so far that we can never reach it. You know, the way you might think of from the Christian perspective of heaven or something. It's about Davy insists upon the here and nowness of those greater possibilities. He also insists on the necessity of matter in the process of sentience. So matter and spirit or matter and mind, you might say, they're one thing to Davy. You can't have one without the other. And I think that's what pins down the here and nowness of his fantasy of or revelation, whatever you want to call it, of the progress of consciousness and what it's capable of and what and what higher beings might exist out there in the ether. They have to be materially real. They have to be embodied in order to be sentient. And so matter and mind go together for Davy. And I think that's really important because it's going to point towards panpsychism like we saw in the last episode over and over and over again, bringing him to this idea of a, of a sort of panpsychist approach. So he believes that spirit exists in matter and time, here and now, not on an ethereal plane, not in a world of forms, like Plato would say, not in the realm of the gods, but just up, you know, just tilt your head up and look out into space and you can even see that little flickering planet out there. That's the place where he says, you know, the the angels are existing, you know, something like that. Speaking of strangeness, today's tale continues with the stranger that Davy encountered in the last episode. He is referred to as the unknown, and he's not named in the dialogue. It's mysterious. He has, he has knowledge and understanding beyond the mortal, and seemingly represents the unknown part of ourself, the unconscious part, the part that understands inexplicably what we do not, the part that pushes and pulls us from within, the part we resist at our peril. Now let's see what he has to tell us. All right, that brings me to the first part we're going to call the chemical philosopher. The background here is Davy and his buddies, Davy and company, they actually seek out that unknown stranger, uh, the man that they spoke with in the last episode um, on the mountaintop. They go, to, they go to seek him out. If you remember, he was, like I said, he had beyond mortal levels of knowledge. He was, he was talking about biological evolution. He was talking about the Big Bang and the creation of the Earth. He was talking about all kinds of advanced science that was blowing the, blowing the minds of Davy and his buddies. So they're going to seek out this guy, the sage, the guy with no name who seems to know things he shouldn't know, you know, that type of, of character. And it opens up like this. I ventured the evening after our visit to the cave of Adelsberg to ask him some questions relating to his history and adventures. All right, so this is opening it up. They're going to Adelsberg to find the unknown stranger. 
they got some, <clears throat> they got some other questions for him. How does he know what he knows? You know, what, what has he been through in his life? They're, they're interested. What I want to point out firstly, though, is this character of this unknown stranger is mysterious for all the reasons we talked about already. But I think what's extra interesting here is that Davy's going to seek him out and finds him in a cave. And if that, if you can see where I'm going with this, a cave is a place where visionaries and prophets are often found. You could think about the priestess of Delphi from ancient Greece when people would go to the temple of Apollo at Delphi to, <clears throat> to get their, um, to talk to the oracle. She would go into the cave and she would breathe the fumes from the cave and she would come out and speak you know, about her visions. So the prophets, the prophetess in that case, is found in the cave. You might also remember that Muhammad, when he, when he was getting the Quran from, the, from God or from the angels, however the story goes, he goes to pray in the cave, you know, goes out into the wilderness, into the cave. And you see that all the time. I mean, if you could talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, where do they find those? Those people were out there living and, and, and hiding in these cave systems. So this is, no, this is not accidental that Davy finds the unknown in a cave. It seems to make him out to be something more like a prophet or visionary. And that brings us to the unknown. And, and the unknown stranger is going to speak, he says. In manhood... Fortune smiled upon me and made me independent. I then really became a philosopher and pursued my travels with the object of instructing myself and of benefiting mankind. I have seen most parts of Europe and conversed with all the illustrious men of science. My life has not been unlike that of the Greek sages. I have added some little to the quantity of human knowledge, and I have endeavored to add something of the quantity of human happiness." Okay, so here it's basically, he comes right out and says it, that he's not unlike the Greek sages, and you can see how that is how the unknown is being painted. He's a visionary, he's a prophet, he's found in the cave, he has this mysterious level of information uh, above and beyond the normal. And he even says he traveled the world and spoke to all the philosophers, all the men of science. And I just want to mention that's exactly what Socrates did. Socrates, the ancient first ancient Greek philosopher, he traveled the, the known world speaking to all of the people who claimed to know, who claimed to be philosophers, and he tried to figure out what he could learn from them. And this is exactly what the unknown has done. Somehow he made a fortune when he was an adult. He was able to dedicate his life to knowledge. He wanted to benefit mankind with that knowledge. This is, this, this is the backstory for the unknown. That brings us back to Davy. He says, The information we have already received from you proves to me that chemistry has been your favorite pursuit. I am surprised by this. The higher mathematics and pure physics appear to me to offer much more noble objects of contemplation. All right, so this is Davy saying, you know, you told us so much about chemistry uh, already. It seems to me like that's, that's where your heart is. And then he says he's surprised by it. And he's like, you know, don't you think somebody with your insight, somebody with your knowledge might want to focus on more abstract physics and math? You know, those are more difficult topics. They're more abstract. And perhaps there's more value to be, to be found there. And I think to myself, man, that is an interesting thing to say. 
it's an interesting doubt for Davy to pose because, because Davy was a chemist and a philosopher. He was both, both of those things. And he's saying he's surprised that the unknown would focus so much on chemistry. Well, that's interesting because that's what Davy did. And I wonder if that's a reflection of his own regrets. If at the end of his life, if Davy wished he had, had focused more on this abstract math and physics, um, because there might be, you know, something deeper to be learned there. And maybe he's expressing that regret here. It's, I don't know, but it's just interesting to hear this perspective from Davy when he himself was a chemist. <clears throat> so the unknown responds, he says, persons look at the fabric of civilized society as the result of the accumulated labor, ingenuity, and enterprise of man through a long course of ages, and usually attribute to politicians and warriors a much greater share than really belongs to them. The beginning of civilization is the discovery of some useful arts by which men acquire property, comforts, or luxuries. The necessity of preserving them leads to laws and social institutions. The discovery of peculiar arts gives superiority to particular nations, and the love of power induces them to subjugate other nations, who learn their arts and ultimately adopt their manners, so that in reality, the origin, as well as the progress of society, is founded in mechanical and chemical inventions. And boy, I mean, I know there's a lot there, but that last sentence was interesting. The unknown is basically saying that of all the different types of arts and inventions that human beings create, that the mechanical and the chemical ones are the ones that are responsible for basically everything. Everything we would refer to as society, as civilization, as culture, that that's where they come from. And I think it's interesting, and I left it in because I think it's, I kind of agree with it, but he says, he says here that, uh, that civilization is, is, is society are usually, um, I mean, that achievement is usually attributed to politicians and warriors. You know, those are the ones that are managing the societies, forming the societies, protecting the societies to preserve them, and that they get a lot, they get way too much credit in history for civilization, that the credit really belongs to to other people. It belongs to, it belongs to, um, entrepreneurs. It belongs to, um, people that think outside of the box that challenge the orthodoxy, those people that create new things that allow the civilization to constantly transform. Those are the people that are responsible. The ones that get credit are the politicians and the warriors. And I think that's interesting. Uh, but he goes on and he says, he, this is an interesting bit here. He says that the beginning of civilization is the discovery of some useful arts. So you can imagine, you know, we, we learn how to use fire, we learn how to make pottery, we learn, you know, there's all these things that human beings learn how to do that, you know, we'll, we'll call them useful arts here. And he says that once you have something like that, you know, once you have, let's say, discovered how to use fire, how to make fire, and the tribe next door has it, you having discovered that new thing gives you superiority over the other nations, right? And then it says, the love of power then induces you to subjugate other nations. So you've got an edge over them, and that's going to, that's going to play with sort of human psychology so that, we, so that we then go out and want to sort of dominate those other nations who don't have it. But what's interesting is when we do that, 
they learn fire, right? They become part of our, of our group. They learn the secrets of the group and become just like the group. And then that's when he says that the origins as well as the progress of society is founded in mechanical and chemical inventions. So you can see the whole process laid out that begins with learning a new or, or inventing a new art. So the unknown lays out the start of civilization and all of its development from the birth of culture, the social contract, and conquest as the, the invention of art. And first and, foremost, <clears throat> first and most powerful among them, chemistry. Of all the arts, chemistry. So he's going to defend that. That's going to be the theme today. Uh, but again, an interesting proposition from Davy, the, the great chemist, who himself saw visions and reached God through the power of chemicals. And so it does seem to me that Davy is placing that, that in the personality of the unknown here. Because again, that's the one that's supposed to be intriguing to the reader, and it absolutely is. All right, go on. <clears throat> He says, the, the unknown continues, No people have ever arrived at any degree of perfection in their institutions who have not possessed in a high degree the useful and refined arts. All right, now, before I read this next bit, I just want to caution the sensitive readers. This book was written in 1829. It's not as culturally sensitive as you might, you might expect it to be today. So no apologies for it. It is what it is, but here we go. He says, Take the native of New Holland, advanced only a few steps above the animal by the use of fire, naked, defending himself against wild beasts or killing them for food, living only in holes dug out of the earth or in huts rudely constructed, unacquainted with religion, government, or laws, submitted to the mercy of nature. How different is man in his highest state of cultivation? Every part of his body covered with the products of chemical and mechanical arts made not only useful in protecting him, but combined in forms of beauty and variety. Extracting metals from the rude ore and giving to them a hundred different shapes for a thousand different purposes. Improving the vegetable productions which, with which he covers the earth. Not only subduing but domesticating the wildest inhabitants of the wood, the mountain, and the air, making the winds carry him on every part of the immense ocean, and compelling the elements to labor for him, blasting rock, removing the mountain, carrying water from the valley to the hill, perpetuating thought in imperishable words, rendering immortal the exertion of genius, and presenting them as common property to all awakening minds, becoming, as it were, the true image of divine intelligence, receiving and bestowing the breath of life in the influence of civilization. Man. So, you see what I mean? What he's doing, what the unknown is doing here is comparing like a tribal person, somebody that might, might have been called a savage or a barbarian, you know, in ancient times, but a tribal person without a lot of technology, at least not, not modern technology, not no industry, you know, um, and comparing that, that the way that that person lives and what they're able to achieve to a modern person in the, you know, in the 1800s. Um, and the difference the way he describes it, you, you know, I, I couldn't do a better job of it myself. It's night and day. 
<clears throat> what I find interesting, though, <clears throat> is the the way he describes human beings using art to do all of these things <clears throat> that that he's describing when he says that we we're, we're covered in products, you know, we're, we're, that things that we wear, you know, that are made from chemicals and mecha mechanical arts, you know, our clothes, our watch, our whatever. Um, but we also use them as ornaments, you know, jewelry and ornaments that we can make useful things, but we can also make beautiful things um, and that we can extract metals from the from the rocks and the ground uh, that we can mold them to do all kinds of things that we can that we can selectively breed um, our vegetables and make better f and, and more plentiful food for ourselves and he goes on and on and on with like we domesticate the animals we can even use the elements of nature to our whim you know electricity and dynamite and you know we can do things like move mountains and that's you know by the 1800s that's that's true and then he talks about, you know, the invention of writing where he says perpetuating thought in imperishable words. That's the invention of writing so that our ideas can be immortal and never die. And then he says rendering immortal the exertion of genius. What does that mean? Well, geniuses are the people that come up with new ideas, that make significant progress, that invent new things, that discover new things. All those genius achievements, they get accumulated and attached to something that we call culture and then we pass that on to our children you know and that's what he says he says presenting them as common property to all awakening minds so every time a child is born to us in this modern world they inherit everything we've earned over the last hundred thousand years they inherit our culture our language you know our science all of that and the way that flows is it's interesting because because it closely mirrors an, an apocryphal book called the Book of Enoch. It's a book that wasn't included in the Bible, um, but has really ancient roots. And in fact, it's part of the canon in, in some ancient Christian groups, and also in the Christian church in Ethiopia. And that happens to be the place where it, it, was, where it survived, um, to the present day. We ended up finding copies of the Book of Enoch and the Dead Sea Scrolls, but beforehand, the only place you could really find it was Ethiopia, and it didn't get translated into English, by the way, until the 1800s. And Davy died in 1829, so it's not clear to me that Davy ever had access to the Book of Enoch, but I think it makes the parallels more inexplicable, more mysterious, because what the book of Enoch talks about is something very much like what, Dave, what Davy's vision talks about. Enoch going to heaven. He has a guide, an angel that takes him to heaven. And he meets all of these other, uh, all of these other angels. Um, and they teach human beings all of the arts that are required for civilization. And all of these angels have names. And, you know, you, you guys know the ones probably that are in the Bible, you know, Michael and Gabriel and Uriel and angels like that. But the book of Enoch is filled with them. Barakael and Azazel and all kinds of, all kinds of other angels. And, <clears throat> and they do sound, you know, like space creep, space beings, like aliens, you know, the way Davy's vision would, uh, would have you believe. But what they do is they teach mankind how to make fire. They teach him how to make weapons and ornaments. They teach him how to how to make medicines and poisons, um, how to make tools, 
um, you know, how to read the stars, how to navigate using the stars, that kind of thing. They teach them all of those elements. And in the Book of Enoch, that comes from the angels to man. And that's really the same pattern that we see um, the unknown here, laying out the, the progress of civilization um, to, to, the, to the, you know, the, the modern day. Um, Davy does, as you'll see in the next quote, make the connection to the Greek story of Prometheus, which actually parallels the story of the Book of Enoch in explaining how supernatural beings bestow civilization on mankind. The other, the other item to note is a callback to Davy's vision of the progressive evolution of sentience with a comparison of a traditional tribesman to basically a modern Westerner. Uh, so you see that you're supposed to sort of see this progress from a more simple, basic type of creature and way of living to a much more sophisticated and, and uh, you know, a better one, you might say. Uh, then there's just a hint at the true nature of man, where Davy refers to man being created in God's image and man's creative power to shape civilization. So... So he's giving man this sort of godlike power to change and shape civilization. And we don't think of ourselves as having that power, at least not individually. But collectively, we, we absolutely have that power. Our, our civilization is always changing. It's being added to. It's being revised. And who does that? We do. We do, you know? All right, it goes on. And we may find in the fable of Prometheus taking the flame from heaven to animate his man of clay, an emblem of the effects of fire and its application to chemical purposes in creating the activity and life of society. So that's interesting. So here he brings up Prometheus. If you guys don't know the story of Prometheus, he steals, he steals fire from, from the gods, from the sun. He takes that down to earth and he gives it to human beings as a gift. Uh, why he did that? Um, he did it against, by the way, the uh, permission of the rest of the gods. He just did it. Um, why he did it is because when when the gods were doling out all of the um, powers, you might say, to the creatures that were created, you know, like the tiger gets big claws and muscles and the the eagle gets wings to fly and, and all that. Human beings weren't, there was nothing left to give them. There was nothing left to protect them. So Prometheus goes and gets fire from the sun and brings it down and gives it to human beings. And with that, they create civilization. They, they cook their food. They harden their weapons. They learn how to make metal, all that sort of thing. It's the, it's the same story that I just described from the book of Enoch. But the angels... Um, you know, Barakiel and Azazel and all these angels. In this story, they're not Barakiel, they're Prometheus. And you might have noticed a couple of parallels to the Bible when we read that. When he brings up Prometheus and he talks about him animating this man of clay, well, that's obviously an image from the Bible, of human beings being created by God from, from dirt, from the earth. But there's another one you may not have picked up on. Remember when I said that in the book of Enoch, the angels taught civilization to mankind. And in the Greek story, it's Prometheus rather than an angel. Well, the thing about Prometheus is, in Greek, his, his name means forethought. But he wasn't known 
by that by that title. He was known as the bringer of fire. Prometheus was the bringer of light. And that comes to us in Latin as Lucifer, the bringer of light, Lucifer. So, not only do we have this connection between the man of clay, bringing us back to the Bible, but Prometheus, the Greek god, himself is understood, just like the book of Enoch, as a supernatural being, as an angel, as a higher being that brings those gifts to mankind. And it goes on. Look to the progress of the arts since they have been enlightened by a system of science and observe with what rapidity they have advanced. So I think this is just a, this is just a call out to the progressive nature of technology. We, we see that obviously much more in the world around us today than even than Davy would have in the 1800s. Um, you know, computing power is doubling every so many years. Science is just advancing by leaps and bounds. And, and what he's, what he's pointing to is this progress, this progression, this advancement of knowledge. The same thing he talked about when he was, when he was talking about tribal, you know, savage people, um, versus their more sophisticated civilized counterparts, you know, in the modern world. The same exact message we got from Davy's vision when we when we learned that there were creatures living on other planets that were more sophisticated and more developed and more highly evolved than human beings, right? the The idea is that there is a steady progression, advancement of knowledge and of and of and of consciousness and its manifestations. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. The idea that that the arts that have created our civilization, um, they have they have done nothing but ramp up in their rapidity and their and their accumulation. You know, when science was introduced to the picture, and it goes on. He says, "There is something in knowing and understanding the operation of nature, some pleasure in contemplating the order and harmony of the system of things." And I think that's true. This this goes back to the this idea of these um, supernatural beings, whether they're angels living on other planets or supernatural creatures like what we see in Enoch or Prometheus. Whatever the case may be, they represent some higher version of us, some goal that we can aspire to, right? And knowing how that how that progress works, that's something that would be would be powerful to understand, you know, because what you're understanding is not just how the world works. It's something also like how you work. And so knowledge of the, of the cosmos on that level, the order and harmony of things, that that's something like self-knowledge. It's also something like self-knowledge. It applies to you. You're part of the universe. You're part of the system of things. And that reminds me of, uh, again, the, the uh, Temple of Apollo at Delphi. And what was written above the temple when you walked in was a Greek phrase that said, Know thyself. All right, so it goes on. It says, It is surely a delight to know how this earth is clothed with life, how clouds and rain are formed, what causes all the changes of this terrestrial system, and by what divine law order is preserved. It is a sublime occupation 
to bring the lightning from the clouds and make it subservient to our experiments and to measure and weigh those invisible atoms which constitute the universe of things. Man. So he's basically just laying out the goal of science and talking about the value in it. It's not just... It's not just the value that he that he powerfully paints when he says to bring the lightning from the clouds and make it subservient to our experiments that that we can take control of and harness a power as great as electricity, you know, uh, and this dynamic and powerful version we see in nature that we can learn how to wield it, you know. That's that's part of it, but the other part of it is strictly the knowledge. It's strictly the understanding. It's knowing how all of this works, that there's value in that. There's some kind of supreme value in that. And as human beings, we understand that. You know, knowledge feels good. It feels good to learn something, to come to understand something. There's some real... Boy, I don't know what word to use. Joy, I guess, in that. And it's, and it's sort of unexplainable. Where does that come from? You know, it's part of us deep, deep down. And, um, and again, this, re- this relates to the progress, to these other beings from Davy's vision, the, the possibilities of what our own consciousness might become. Something higher, something greater, something better. And that there's this, this progress um, upwards. And the more, the higher you go up on that hierarchy, the more those creatures understand about how the world works and how the, and how they work and what the world is and what they are it's the intellectual love of god you might say and that's something that human beings have but to a lesser degree than these other beings you know the purpose of our progress is to be able to do that more all right then he goes on he says the chemical philosopher sees man an atom amidst atoms, which is another way of saying he sees man as just another piece of nature, just like anything else. And yet modifying the laws that are around him by understanding them. All right, let me pump the brakes for a second. So he says the chemical philosopher sees man an atom amidst atoms, and yet modifying the laws that are around him by understanding them. So this is interesting. He's saying that even though man is just a part of this greater system, it's just a piece of nature like anything else, that it has the ability to modify the laws around him just by understanding them. And what does that mean? Well, we just saw in the prior um, quote about wielding lightning and electricity. So it, it, has, something, it has something to do with that. It's, you know, when, when we understand the laws, then we can manipulate them. Um, but the way he says it, modifying the laws by understanding them, what that sounds to me like is mental causation. And that's, an, that's a, a, a topic that came up in the David Chalmers uh, podcast that we did, in the um, Peter Shirsted Hughes podcast that we did, talking about consciousness and sentience that whole time. This idea of mental causation, it comes up as a, as a sort of unanswered question. Is, is there such a thing? As mental causation, can you move your arm, let's say, just by, you know, power of your mind? Um, to what degree is is consciousness a cause? 
That's that's the question. And I think that you see that here in the dialogue in eight, from 1829. And I find that to be interesting. I don't know that there's a lot of substance to it here, but really interesting that Davy picked up on this question that would become such a big part of the debate even today. So let me reread, reread this whole quote. The chemical philosopher sees man an atom amidst atoms, and yet modifying the laws that are around him by understanding them, and gaining dominion over time and space, and exerting a creative energy, which entitles him to the distinction of the image of God, animated by a spark of the divine mind. That inextinguishable thirst after knowledge is one of the greatest characteristics of our nature, the progressive nature of the human intellect seems to demonstrate its birthright to immortality. Man, that's good. So, so there's this, there's this piece here that says, even though man is just an atom among atoms, we're just one piece of it, that we have the ability to harness the powers of nature, to gain dominion over time and space, and to exert a creative energy. Those are the things that we create, that we bring into being. Those are the cities that we build, the languages that we invent, the music that we, that we write, the things that we create like God created, right? That's the creative energy that he says entitles us to being called the image of God. So we're something like the image of God, like, like a symbol of God or a reflection of God, animated, he says, by a spark of the divine mind. Isn't that interesting? So it's not, it's, not, it's not God itself. He doesn't come right out and say it's God itself that animates us. But he does say it's a spark from the divine mind. And that's not the same thing as saying a spark of, God, of, of God's soul or spirit exactly. That's the animating part that makes them alive. He says mind. That's the sentient part. That's the conscious part. That what makes us alive, we're an image of God that's that has the breath of life breathed into us by a little piece of God, it seems like, a little piece of God's sentience. That's what Davies is describing, or rather the unknown is describing. And I just find that, I find that interesting. It's not dissimilar from what you would hear from an Orthodox Christian or Jewish perspective, but the language, it has a whole different connotation, and, it, and I can't disagree with it. I can't disagree with it. Whatever it is that makes God sentient is, is what makes man sentient. And that's what he's saying. And that, that divine thing that we share in common with, with the creator, you might say, that's what gives us the ability to be creative, to create new things. That's what gives us the, the ability to dominate space and time and to harness the forces of nature. I mean, I mean the picture that comes to mind is like, human beings becoming something like Zeus wielding a lightning bolt, you know? And how far, how far away is that from reality in the 21st century? It's amazing. And then he says the progressive nature of the human intellect demonstrates its birthright to immortality. Human intellect, you know, that's the thing that our, that our sentience makes possible. And that's our birthright to immortality. The same thing that God is. The same thing that makes God sentient, that we share, that makes us sentient, that is our birthright to immortality, right? Because to Davy, sentience is immortal, like in a, in a reincarnation kind of way. Sentience doesn't, is not born and it doesn't die. 
It changes from one form to another, just like Newton described energy or mass. It just transforms from one phase to, an, to another. To Davy, your, your next phase may be on Jupiter. It may be in the sun. It may be on a comet. You know, To a Buddhist, your, your reincarnation might be as a rich man, as a poor man, as a cripple, as a, as a demon. Uh, you know, It's the same tale wrapped up in different clothes. So I think, I think Davy sees the chemical philosopher, or that the chemical philosopher rather sees man as one small piece of a process, like an, like Alfred North Whitehead would say, and that is God. And at the same time, God itself—it's uh, a process, but at the same time, God itself. So Davy says, as our friend has so fully convinced us of the importance of chemistry. I hope he will descend to some particulars as to its real nature. I would willingly have a definition of chemistry. Okay, so now Davy's saying to the unknown, you know, if you're saying chemistry is such an important part of all of this, you know, the creation of the world, the progress of civilization, if chemistry is all important, help me understand what you mean. And the unknown says, chemistry relates to those operations by which the intimate natures of bodies is changed or by which they acquire new properties. So what this sounds like to me is, is Davy basically just putting his finger on the heart of chemistry. And the heart of chemistry is transformation. It's to change something, to make something new. And I, and I can't help but make the connection between transformation and mystic experience. Anybody who's had a mystic experience or a psychedelic mystic experience, let's say, those people understand that the visuals and the emotional components very often show you over and over and over again a constant process of change, transforming geometrical shapes, changing colors, changing patterns, motion. All of that stuff represents transformation. It's a hallmark of the mystic experience. It also happens to be are the hallmark of chemistry. And so I think that's the connection that's being made between, between chemistry and these more mystical ideas. And the unknown goes on. He says, I will say a few words of the intellectual qualities necessary for discovery. The mind must not be a burden of knowledge, but rather a critical dictionary which abounds in generalities. He should be humble-minded and a diligent searcher after truth, and neither diverted from his great object by the love of glory or popularity. He should resemble the geometricians in the greatness of his views and the profoundness of his researches, and the ancient alchemists in industry and piety. His mind should always be awake to devotional feeling, and in contemplating the variety and beauty of the external world, he will always refer to that infinite wisdom through which he is permitted to enjoy knowledge. Fuck. <clears throat> and in becoming wiser, he will become better. His increased sagacity will be subservient to a more exalted faith. And as the veil becomes thinner through which he sees the causes of things, he will admire more the brightness of the divine light by which they are rendered visible. Motherfucker, that is good. That is a good paragraph. There's a lot here. 
So where to begin? Um, okay, so let's take a look at let's take a look at the sentence where he says his mind should always be awake to devotional feeling. Like, so we're talking here about scientific discovery. We're talking about chemistry, and you notice he says some interesting things um, that don't seem to fit with this well, generally atheistic, scientific sort of way of thinking. He says that you have to be humble-minded and you have to be a diligent searcher after truth. And, you know, that part's perfectly true for a scientist as it would be for a philosopher or, you know, somebody seeking religious wisdom or whatever. Be be a diligent searcher after truth. Be humble-minded, you know. Um, ex- you know, accept the things that, that uh, you're being told and, and all that. Don't be distracted by the love of glory or popularity. You know, what, what happens when a scientist wants to prove a theory rather than discover truth? You know, he bends the facts and lies, you know, to try to get that paper published or something. That's the glory part or the popularity part that we need to resist. All that stuff seems perfectly fine for a scientist. But then it starts getting weird. He says, he says that, that he should resemble the geometricians in the greatness of his views. So he, Somebody who wants to discover truth needs to be needs to be thinking abstractly and needs to be thinking at the the highest level possible. And then he starts using words like piety. You know, that's a word that comes up with religious faith. Piety. It's being faithful to religious laws and and so forth. So this word comes up piety. And then he says his mind should be awake to devotional feelings. And that's something that you only hear in, in a religious context. What does that mean? It means that there are things that happen to you. There are ideas that occur to you. There are things you witness um, that, that evoke devotional feelings. They evoke these unusual feelings. Uh, if you've had them, you know what I mean. That draw you towards religious mysteries. They draw you towards your deepest selves. These devotional feelings that that crop up. He says you need to pay attention to those because they're because they're showing you something. They're guiding you towards something. So you need to you need to have piety. You need to be conscious of your devotional feelings. And and then he says that when you, that you have to pay attention to the beauty of nature. And that's not something unusual, even from a scientific perspective. You hear physicists all the time talk about um, formulas being beautiful because they're simplistic and because they capture so much in their simplicity that they're beautiful. So that's not unusual, really. But he says when you, when you recognize the beauty in nature, you, you must always refer to the infinite wisdom through which he is permitted to enjoy knowledge. What does that mean? What is that which, which is permitted to enjoy knowledge? That's sentience. That's your consciousness. That's the part that can enjoy knowledge. That's the part that can have knowledge. So you have to always bear that in mind. When you're looking, when you're recognizing the beauty in the world, when you're, when you're recognizing those devotional feelings, you have to keep in mind that that stuff is coming from your consciousness coming from your sentience. It's a part of your deeper spiritual self, and it's important. Now, how is it important in a scientific perspective? How is those things important in a scientific perspective? You know, we don't think about that in the modern day. We, we, we cringe at that idea, that beauty and, and, and intuition and, and those sorts of things should be a part of scientific pursuits. But he's saying that they must be. 
that you that you know things like those sort of the sorts of things that guide you down a path down a dark path where we haven't been before a place where we can make discoveries a place where we can bring something new into the world and then he says something interesting he says his increased sagacity uh, it will be subservient to a more exalted faith and I read that and I, I stopped for a second I was like I don't know if I agree with that and then I was like oh I see what he's saying here I think what he's saying here is that when you have when you when you follow these prescriptions and you have the insight that's necessary for discovery that open-mindedness is something like a mystic experience and that when you have an experience like that, there's some truth, some intuited truth. You know, it's, it's um, Dr. Sherstead Hughes referred to that as noetic, as realer than real. The feeling that you have from psychedelic experience where you come out and you say, that was realer than real. Those are the kind of things that become, that become the judge to all of your other insights and to all of your other knowledge. <clears throat> when you've had a mystic experience, that is the exalted faith that everything else has to be subservient to, right? Everything, every other idea you have has to accord with what you, what you thought of as realer than real. It's the highest truth that everything else is going to get judged against. Anything else that you might throw into that category of truth has to accord with mystic intuition. And I think that's what he means when he says that the increased sagacity will be subservient to a more exalted faith, that's the more exalted faith, mystic intuition. And I think that, that we can't really argue that fact when we finish the sentence because he starts talking about that veil of perception. He says, and as the veil becomes thinner through which he sees the causes of things, he will admire more the brightness of the divine light by which they are rendered visible. So the process of discovery, whether it be philosophical or scientific or whatever, that that's something that will allow you to admire more the brightness of the divine light. It should show you something more deep, deeply hidden about the nature of reality and about the nature of yourself. And, and here's what I find interesting. This whole thing, this whole paragraph, it reads like advice for understanding mystic experience. Now, somebody who's trying to, trying to help you understand a mystic experience or trying to prepare you to going into having one, let's say a, a psychedelic experience, they would say things just like this. They would say, don't impose your own thoughts, desires, or judgments on the experience. Allow yourself to think abstractly in generalities so you can recognize broader connections between things. And recognize your sentience as something ultimately significant and work ceaselessly for the truth of what you and the world around you are. That's perfect advice for preparing somebody for a mystic experience. And that's exactly what the unknown has just laid out in talking about a pursuit of discovery. You know, he's talking about a scientific context, but you know what? So did Davy. Dr. Shirsted Hughes called Davy the first scientific psychonaut. So it shouldn't be surprising. And that brings us to our next section which we're calling time. So I'll set the scene for you. Davy and company, they now travel with the unknown. And they go to the ruins of an amphitheater in Istria. 
So now they're in a new place, just like they were sort of at the Coliseum with the with the runes all around all around them, and they're you know it's a tourist spot, I guess. And it, this is how it opens up. The splendid exterior of the amphitheater was not in harmony with the bare walls of the interior. This led us to reflect upon the causes of the destruction of so many of the works of the older nations. Davy said, We refer the changes, the destruction of material forms, to time. But there must be physical laws in nature by which they are produced. And I begged our new friend to give us some ideas on this subject. Okay, so now Davy's bringing up this subject of time. He's looking down at the ruins of the amphitheater. He sees it was once a great building. It's now in ruins. They're talking about how that happens. Obviously, that, that's something that happens over the course of time. And Davy asked the question. He's like, is time responsible for death and decay? Or is something else, something more specific, something that we associate with time, but isn't exactly time? And who would know the answer to such a difficult question but the unknown? He seems to know all kinds of things. So Davy asks. He asks the unknown to give us some ideas. And this is how he responds. A great philosopher said, Man can in no other way command nature but but, but in obeying her laws. And in these laws, the principle of change is a principle of life. Without decay... Everything is submitted to immutable laws of destruction, as universal as those which produce the planetary motions. Gravitation is the first and most general cause of change in our terrestrial system, and whilst it preserves the great mass of the globe, its influence is continually producing alterations upon the surface. And by the influence of the sun, the globe is exposed to great varieties of temperature. By variation of heat, certain kinds of matter are rendered fluid or elastic and changes from fluids into solids or from solids or fluids. If water exists, then its expansion tends not only to diminish their cohesion, but to break them into fragments. All the vegetable substances exposed to water and air are liable to decay, and even the vapor in the air, attracted by wood, gradually reacts upon its fibers and assists decomposition. Electricity, as a chemical agent, may be considered not only as directly producing an infinite variety of changes, but likewise as influencing almost all which takes place. Okay, <clears throat> so on the surface, you don't have you don't have anything crazy mystical here, although I think there's something hidden in here that I'll tell you about that is. What you do see, though, is a really intelligent summary of all of the elements within nature that are constantly working to to transform. You can say decay or die, but that's what's happening. They're changing or transforming. And so you see all these mechanisms that everything he's pointing to, you know, the 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 elements, you know, the um the creatures that exist, all of this stuff is is constantly contributing to a process of change, transformation, decay, breakdown, you know, death. And so the unknown is saying those things aren't time. You know, they're all these other things. But everything that he points to has the same effect, you know, all things considered. It seems like it's a part of the system overall. It's in every piece of it. And he's just outlined a few. 
But let me go back to this mystic part that I, I referred to, and this is in the very beginning. He says, a great philosopher said, man can in no other way command nature but in obeying her laws. This is the, this is the thing I think is, is mystical. I'll tell, I'll tell you why. Because he, he says in order to command nature, you need to obey her. And do you see there that command and obey are opposites? And this goes back to this idea of the syzygy or the Ouroboros that we've talked about so much, that the, the earliest conception of God is something like the generative union of opposites. That when you bring them together, uh, that something, something is created, something new. And in this case, that's the same thing we see here. We, say, we, we, we see that nature, in order to be commanded, has to be obeyed. It reminds me of you know, like something that Jesus would say, like the first among you will be the last, something like that. It's this illustration of opposites united. To command and obey are opposites. But when you can do them both, when you have them both somehow, that's, that, that's where the secret is. You know, that's where the mystery is. That's where you're going to get something new. And in this case, it's the ability to command nature, to use it at our will, to wield it as a weapon, you know, as something that we have control and dominion over, you know. That makes us something like God if we can do that if we can unify the opposites and find out how to command nature by obeying its laws, I think that's interesting. It goes on, and this is kind of more of the same. But the physical powers of nature in producing decay are assisted likewise by organized beings. A polished surface is made rough from the seeds of lichens. The animal lends its aid in the process. The fox burrows among ruins... Bats and birds nestle in cavities. The ant, by establishing her colony, saps the foundations of the strongest buildings. And to these operations, the devastations of war, the destructive zeal of bigotry, the predatory fury of barbarians, and it is rather to be wondered that any of the works of the great nations of antiquity are still in existence. All right, so that second bit is just saying, look, beyond just the water and the air and the heat and all the stuff that are, are constantly eroding and changing the earth and our, and our very own bodies, then you've got animals and human beings that are doing exactly the same thing all the time. And he said it's a damn wonder that anything's left with all of those forces, everything acting to destroy it. And what comes out of this to me is something like, the actions of all things, big and small, material or energetic, all work together, unknowingly it seems like, to destroy order. And, it, and you might wonder, I mean it seems like a, well, I'll let, I'll, let Davey, I'll let Davey say it for me in the next quote. He says, your view of the causes of devastation is a melancholy one, nor do I see any remedy so that, that, that's my thoughts exactly. If what the unknown is saying here is that everything is constantly working to break down and destroy order, um, if, if, everything, if everything is doing that, you know, it's only a matter of time before everything is broken and there's nothing left. It's a melancholy view. And there's something missing here, which Jordan Peterson will, will be the first person to say, that when order is destroyed that that sets up the conditions for 
for chaos to be to to rise and take the place of order. But remember, chaos is only the raw material for more order. So it's just a matter of time before order comes from the chaos again, just like the yin and the yang. So to destroy order is necessary. You know, order and chaos are opposites. Opposites united in the Ouroboros. They're both necessary. You must destroy order so that chaos can rise. And why? Why do we want chaos to rise? So new order can come about. It's a cycle. It's a process. And then that brings me back to the Davy quote we just read where he says it's a melancholy view and he doesn't see any remedy. But he says, Yet supposing the constant existence of a highly civilized people, the ravages of time might be repaired. And so what he's pointing to here is that the greater the civilization, you know, in, in, the, in the modern Western civilization in his mind is the, is the, the height, the height um, of civilization so far. But he, put, he would easily point to those alien creatures from his vision and say that they're even more civilized, that they're even more powerful, and that their ability to repair the, the destruction uh, going on all around us might even be higher than ours. And it reminds me of reminds me of the opening scene from the Bible, really. It reminds me of the Garden of Eden. Because that's what a garden is. You know, it's the chaos of nature that's kept in check by constant attention. And Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're tending the garden, you know. They're, they're keeping the chaos at bay. And it requires constant attention. If you have a garden, you know what I mean. You look out at the prairie with the wildflowers around your garden. You look at the lush forest, you know, full of brambles and thickets. And you look at your garden and you see the nice hedgerows, everything trimmed and, and kept in these nice geometrical patterns. All of your vegetables and fruit growing with the, you know, with the weeds being plucked from all around them. You know, that's what it requires. Order requires con- constant maintenance. And it seems like that perhaps, is what sentience is here to do, to tend the garden, you know? And it's not, it's not up to us only as human beings, but to Davy's mind, it's up to all sentience, you know, the high and the low. It's certainly our responsibility, but it's the responsibility of the angels as well. It's the responsibility of the supernatural creatures that live in the sun as well, you know? So he sees that responsibility and he sees that sentience everywhere, and in all things, and it's not just the sentience, it's the responsibility of tending the garden, right? It's like sentience is the chaos itself, but it's also the one responsible for making itself order. The self-created, as Aristotle would say. It's amazing. All right, so one of Davy's buddies chimes in here. He says, none of the works of a mortal being can be eternal. Man may for a time usurp dominion over nature, she is certain of recovering her empire. Yeah, exactly. That's the chaos order bit that we just talked about from Jordan Peterson, but which says that we're we're the creative and preservative force that's opposite the destructive force. And I can't help but say that creative, preservative, and destructive without thinking of Hinduism, without thinking of their holy trinity, Brahma the creator, Shiva the destroyer, Vishnu the preserver. And Jordan Peterson would use similar terminology when he says chaos, order, and the force that mediates between the divine hero. 
All right, so back to Davy. He says, The changes of the material universe are in harmony with those which belong to the human body and which you suppose to be the machinery of the sentient principle. So let's pump the brakes for a second. The changes of the material universe are in harmony with those which belong to the human body. So what he's pointing out here is a fractal image that always comes up in mystic intuition. He's saying if we look at nature and we can see that it's all constantly changing, and we look at our own bodies and psyches and see that they're constantly changing, that we see a thread that, that goes from the universe into our, our own soul, and it's the same thing that we see happening out there that's happening inside. And that, he says, is the, is the machinery of the sentient principle. That's the thing that makes consciousness possible. Now he goes on, he says, May we not venture to imagine that the visible world bears the same relation to the divine intelligence that our organs bear to our mind. Amazing. And he's saying, like, the material cosmos is, a, is an infrastructure that's necessary to make the manifestations of sentience possible, you know? Matter, energy, you and I. The same way that our body supports our sentience, the material cosmos supports sentience, you might say, the divine sentience, or the source consciousness, or whatever you want to call it. I don't really make that distinction. I think human consciousness and God consciousness are identical, but what, you know, to each, to each their own. Then he says that the only difference between uh, divine intelligence and human intelligence is that in the divine system, there is no decay. There being, in the order of things, a perfect unity. And that requires some explanation. It's almost like he's saying we see decay around us, but that's something like an illusion. Because if, if the divine system is a perfect unity, then you would expect a conservation of things. Just like Newton says, a conservation of energy, a conservation of matter. If everything is one, you don't expect anything to be added or taken away because it's one. It's a perfect unity. That's what the mystic intuition tells you. All is one. So how can we see decay all around us? You know, things breaking down and disappearing and not be able to understand that things disappear because they don't. So what's happening here? So this calls back the not only the conservation of energy and mass, but the mystic oneness. It suggests that decay and death are nothing but transitions that occur within the one. Decay or entropy is but one half of the oneness of the Ouroboros or the Syzygy. But it is necessary. It's a necessary part of the whole. So what we have here is what we have here is the illusion part being the our inability to see the, the recycling that's going on, for lack of a better word. So we see the order only. We don't see the chaos. And when things break down, when order breaks down and disappears, it doesn't disappear. It becomes the chaos again. So it's a perfect unity. It's a yin and yang. The breaking down simply transforms order into chaos. It chaos into order. Nothing else. I would say it transforms God into being and being into God but to each his own. And then the last, the last bit of this, he, he refers to another scientist, Laplace. He says, 
Laplace has proved that sources of disorder are in fact the perfecting machinery of the system. So disorder is necessary to perfect the system. You must have disorder in order to have order. You can't have one without the other. It's amazing. And when he says perfecting the system, I can't help but think that means to make the system whole, to make it complete, to unite the opposites. All right, back to Davy. He says, being sure that God is omnipotent and omnipresent, it appears to me no improper use of our faculties to draw parallels from the infinite to the finite mind. Remember, we are taught that man was created in the image of God, and it cannot be doubted that in the progress of society, man has been a great instrument for improving the moral universe. Compare the Greeks and Romans with the Assyrians and Babylonians, or the ancient Greeks and Romans with the modern nations of Christendom. It cannot be questioned that there has been a great superiority in the latter nations, and that their improvements have been subservient to a more exalted state of existence. Okay, so a couple interesting things here. He says that it seems perfectly reasonable for him to draw parallels between the infinite mind and the finite mind. That the finite mind is you and, and me. The infinite mind is God. And Davy has no problem drawing parallels between those two things. That brings us closer to a panpsychist idea. And then he brings up that we're created in the image of God to defend that argument. But then he starts pointing to the progress of, of society and how the ancient Greeks were, were a step above or, or progress from the Assyrians and Babylonians. And then the modern Christian uh, kingdoms are uh, uh, you know, even superior to the ancient Greeks and Romans. That's what he's laying out. And so that's very much in line with everything we've talked about, this idea of progressive evolution, this idea of reincarnation, constantly progressing into, into more perfect states. Um, he's saying that that is something that is driven by us, by human beings. And that is, again, another way of justifying comparing our consciousness to God because we can do things like God can do. We can create we can guide the process of our own civilization and invent a civilization. Something from nothing, you know? That's what God does. And this last sentence where he says, um, he says that their improvements have been subservient to a more exalted state of existence, that implies that there's some goal in the progress, that it's not random, but it's moving in some particular direction. And that seems to be built in. It seems to be a, a instinctual or a part of nature. And he goes on. If this little globe has been so modified by its inhabitants, I cannot help thinking that in other systems, beings of a superior nature may act nobler parts. We know from the sacred writings that there are intelligences of a higher nature than man. And I cannot help sometimes referring to my vision in the Colosseum. I cannot help forming the opinion that genie or seraphic intelligences may inhabit these systems. And then he says, time is a human word and change a human idea. In the system of nature, we should rather say progress than change. Interesting. Interesting. So 
time, again, he says, is a human idea and change a human idea. That what we should be seeing is not time and change. What we should be seeing is in is a constant process of a progressive evolution. And the progressive part being the key. Amazing. And that brings me to my conclusion. All right, guys. These, my friends, have been the last words of a philosopher. With his dying breath, Davy tells us of his vision of a cosmos alive, swimming in sentience, filled with its embodiments, all striving with singular purpose, striving to become something more. The philosopher Heidegger said, every seeking takes its direction beforehand from what is sought. So whatever it is we are striving after must already exist somehow, right? How else could we be chasing after it? But how does it exist? In potentiality? In outer space? Within ourselves? And just what the hell is it anyway? What are we trying to become? Davy's vision tells us that what we are becoming is a higher being, like the Buddhists and Hindu hope for in reincarnation, like the creatures Davy beheld on Jupiter and Saturn. But that's not the end all, now is it? There are creatures higher still, more intellectually perfect, more fully conscious, closer to God itself. So is that, is that it then? Is that the goal? Are we striving, transforming, evolving into the highest in order to become God? And just what the hell does that mean? Is there even a highest? Is there an upper limit to being where we can find only God existing? Or is God a moving target? The higher we rise, the further away the goal. A never-ending process of building, advancing, becoming. This is what the unknown stranger described, isn't it? And Davy too in his vision. The unknown pointed to the history of the earth and showed how it formed and transformed from its birth. He pointed next to, the, to mankind and showed how we too progressed from savagery to enlightenment. The same with Davy, whose vision revealed a hierarchy of sentient life, some more advanced, some less, scattered throughout the cosmos. And lastly, our path of reincarnation which parallels the progress of human civilization, but on the scale of each individual soul. So is that it? Are we becoming God? Are we an internal process of becoming God? Or are we perhaps God already? Or both? The unknown warned us that change is fundamental, that it is required for life and for being. He told us to embrace change, embrace transformation, so that perhaps we can learn to wield it. Remember, he told us that man commands nature only by obeying its laws. So we must obey change, but we might also command it. In obeying it, we come to learn what it is 
and with what knowledge we use it to our advantage, just as we did with Prometheus's fire. If we learn to use change in accordance with its nature, to command it to our will, what might we accomplish? I think of such things as gene editing and terraforming and ask, who might we become? So let us rise. Let us continue evolving upwards, striving for the highest. Let us become ever more competent, ever more capable. Let us become the God that we have always been. Let us see the truth and let the cards fall where they may. Let's become forever more conscious. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.